Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Podcast. This week saw the launch of Google streaming service Stadia. The new offering from the search giant will let you play games at home or on the go without the need to buy a big expensive console. Is it the future of gaming? Pocalint's Rick Henderson has been playing with the new service to find out and joins us to tell us more later. Meanwhile, I've been chatting with Andy Kerr, Director of Product Marketing at Bowers & Wilkins, the speaker company based in the south of England, to talk about how important having good speakers are and how the company went about developing the sound system for the new Philips OLED Plus 984 TV. And Reviews Editor Mike Lowe walks us through the new Motorola Razr, having played with the new foldable smartphone and an exclusive event in Los Angeles ahead of the UK launch. Is it one to put on your shopping list, or should the phone really have remained in the history books? But first, to you, Rick, why don't you start by telling us what Stadia does and how it actually works? Right, well, Stadia is a uh, cloud gaming platform, and what that effectively means is that rather than host games locally on a games console or a PC, the games are hosted on a server somewhere else in the world. And what happens is you play the game using a dedicated controller, press the button, the button goes down the internet, hits the server over in Canada or hopefully a bit closer to home, um, and the video of the game actually comes back to your TV or mobile device. So therefore, for all intents and purposes, it looks exactly like you're playing the game at home, but it's actually played elsewhere. And I suppose Google can offer this sort of improved latency and all the other stuff because we've seen streaming services before, but they've kind of always fail. But I presume Google is saying, well, look, they've got all this massive infrastructure that they're using for all the search stuff, and therefore we'll just plug in the games, and that means that it solves a lot of the problems from, from other things. Yeah, the one thing about uh, Google Stadia from our tests is that the latency is very low. Previous services that I've played, like Sony's uh, PlayStation Now and the failed OnLive, they um, had really quite bad lag and latency issues where when you press the button, there's a distinct delay between the uh, you pressing the button and the actual action performing on screen. Whereas with Google Stadia, it doesn't do that. It's actually um, incredibly effective in feels like that you're playing it on a games console in many ways, which actually reduces latency. There's another reason. There's another way that um, Stadia reduces latency in the fact that it comes with a dedicated controller that directly links to the internet. It doesn't link to your mobile or well your uh, Chromecast Ultra, which is the only device it really works on at the moment. It doesn't link to that directly, so the um, the latency between the controller and the device is no longer important. It's basically, it's just grabbing that information and sending that information from the cloud. Now you've been playing it and what are the games like? I mean, is it, are they, are they console ready? Do you feel that you were playing a console? There is a slight 
difference between playing a game on Stadia and playing it directly on a console, but only hardcore gamers would really notice the difference. That's what I've found. Um, I have, as full disclosure, I have very good broadband. I have 350 megabits per second broadband and running at between 11 and 13 milliseconds of ping, which means that the latency I experience and the lag I experience is very, very good. And I haven't experienced any stutter whatsoever when my Crankcast Ultra is plugged in through Ethernet. So I ran uh, Destiny 2, for example, which is one of the game launch games on Stadia, through um, both the PS4 Pro and through Stadia, and I could barely tell the difference. I genuinely could barely tell the difference. It was running in 4K HDR on both. Wow. Um, in fact, on Stadia, it was running in 60 frames per second and wasn't on the PS4 Pro, which is quite extraordinary in many respects. Um, but the But the one Mm. thing that I would say is that your video performance will be dependent on your broadband speed and the bandwidth that you experience. If you're running it wireless, other people are using the internet in your household, you might experience lesser performance in terms of video quality. So there's lots of caveats then in that sense of you're not going to be playing this on the train on your... Essentially, see this as Netflix. Now, one of the questions I have is about games. Now, I know that there's been some criticism from some of the other reviewers that obviously the collection of games available hasn't been huge. We saw that with Nintendo Switch, and we both discussed this previously and said that, you know, that hasn't really bothered the Switch users out there. That said, Google is not a games company. Microsoft obviously has the Xbox, is a games company, makes their own games. Sony has their PlayStation, makes their own games. Is is that going to be a problem for for Stadia in the future? Well, yes, is a simple answer in the fact that um, <laughs> it's going to, that Google seems to have launched a year too early if it wanted to launch with its own thir- uh, first party games. It has developed, it has set up its own games development studios, um, and is currently working feverishly on its own games and is plowing a lot of money into that. So we can start to see its own games probably towards the end of 2020. But the but the um the big thing for me though, and it has got a very small library of games available from the off, um, and I'm not overly keen on its pricing structure and the way that works in the fact that their games um, are priced towards console equivalents, which I think is a lot of money considering you don't technically own the game. Um, But the actual um, suite of games that it has now and are coming soon is pretty impressive anyway. Because it has the Red Dead, has Red Dead Redemption two, it has Destiny two, Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven is coming. Um, football Manager, I'm a massive Football Manager fan, so that's, hmm. you know I like the fact that I can play that on my TV. And so, current, so currently, the the third party, you know, the Ubisofts of this world, the you know the rock stars have have signed up and said, you know, yes, we'll 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 support this and we'll go for it. Yeah, they've got all the big boys apart from EA at the moment, so they've definitely got the games coming or on the platform already. The this 22 games launch games is not a massive amount, but like you said earlier, the Switch launched with probably less than that. At the same time, is it unless you've got a really brilliant gaming PC, you can't play Red Dead Redemption 2 at this quality anywhere else. It's a launch platform. People seem to forget that and for, and retrospectively forget 
what happened when other launch platforms arrived. Genuinely, I think we've got to give it a chance. The one the one caveat I would say is that if you already own a games console, there is absolutely no reason to upgrade to Stadia. It's not for you. And so the final question is, is that sense of, so we've obviously got Stadia from Google. Microsoft's xCloud is is not here yet. It's coming. It's still in kind of preview beta mode, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's got a preview mode. But it is coming in 2020 to pretty much every region. That's the big one to look forward to because that one promises a lot of lot. The business model seems to be better with xCloud in the fact that if you own, basically you'll be able to play all of your own Xbox games that you've ever bought on xCloud for free. Plus, you'll also be able to um, use your Games Pass Ultimate subscription. So all the games that are available there will also be available on xCloud. So that will be a real game changer, I think. Pardon the pun. Still to come, Mike talks to us about the new Motorola Razr. So it's, you know, obviously it's in essence it's twice the size that a phone could be, but they've been quite scrupulous about getting it down to... A sensible enough size. Bowser Wilkins has been making speakers for over 50 years. Whether it's the top of the range, eye-catching Nautilus speakers or something more affordable, the company is known for its excellent sound credentials. But with more of us wanting to embrace sound in all aspects of our life, the company has looked to bringing the BMW experience beyond the traditional speaker in partnerships with companies like McLaren and Philips. I sat down with Andy Kerr, Director of Product Marketing at Bowers & Wilkins, to talk about the challenges of creating great sound, how important it is it to support audio platforms like Dolby Atmos in the future, and how you go about creating a sound system for a TV when you're told that the speaker can't be that big. I started asking what consumers need from a sound system connected to your TV today. If you look at the evolution of viewing over the course of the last 15 to 20 years. I mean, we all recall, or certainly I do, the mid-90s of, of uh, kind of the advent of flat panels when up until that point, you know, the cathode ray tube was the dominant force. And, you know, TV sets were huge, huge devices. I mean, I, I vividly remember kind of attempting to review in my former job uh, a 32-inch Sony Vega CRT, which was one of those square tube things. And, and you know, it, it weighed nearly 100 kilograms. I mean, it was it was just an astonishing thing. Of course, the thing about having that much real estate inside the cabinet, inside the enclosure, meant that there was a significant amount of space to put other things in there too, not the least of which were decent-sized drive units. So I don't think most people buying TVs in the mid-90s were overly claiming that you know, they didn't sound very good. The minute we've moved to the flat panel world, you know, space constraints are the issue, aren't they? Clearly, we, we've got to an environment now where you know, there's the bezel shrunk and shrunk. Um, the overall thickness of the panel has diminished over time as, you know, new emerging flat panel te- technologies have come out. You know, these days, there's just so many challenges to actually getting a decent sized set of loudspeakers inside inside the TV set. At the same time, of course, the screen's also grown. Um, so over time, I think we've seen more and more customer feedback saying, no, the picture's lovely. I enjoy the experience, but the sound is really disappointing. And I think you know, as people binge watch more and get more involved in kind of high quality viewing than perhaps they maybe did 15, 20 years ago, because there's more accessibility to it in various different streaming platforms, that's only become more exacerbated. So 
our attempt is to try and you know solve that problem if we can and and working with Philips TV we kind of think we've made some decent progress and do you think before we move on to, I know you've got um, you've got a new range of um, you've put your new speaker into the into the new Philips TV and we'll, we'll come on to that in a moment just one further question I wanted to ask while we're talking about what consumers need and stuff do you think do you think we've lost touch with the power of sound on our TVs and that's something that needs to be addressed I don't know if they've lost touch. I think, you know, do you know what the first and foremost thing, beyond beyond kind of like um, scale and bass and power and immersion and all the other things, it's intelligibility. It's just that very simple thing of actually being able to understand what people are saying. <laughs> I think, you know, you can, you can choose to sort of, you know, if you want to create a home theatre experience or fill your sound, your room with sound or, or all that sort of stuff. But at the very, very start of it all, it's not having to turn the thing up to near maximum volume just to be able to understand what people are saying. So I think it's not so much lost touch with sound or the value of sound as become frustrated by the lack of quality within it. I think that's probably the the the, the fundamental. I mean, I, I, I get so many comments, not only from friends and family, but also from, you know, colleagues within the business that, you know, did you see that thing last night? And I can't understand what was being said. And it's not the mixing engineer's fault and it's not the studios that are responsible for creating the content. It's the fact that the TV that's being used to display the content has speakers that are roughly the size of a 10 pence coin or, or if not smaller, um, probably mounted on the bottom of the panel or maybe found mounted even on the back of the panel. And, and, and that inherently is just not a good start. So kind of <clears throat> separating out beyond, you know, does it make your heart race faster and does it kind of, you know, shake the room? And yeah. Does it kind of wrap you up? experience it's first and foremost is does it just function as a regular telly should do and you so this is the second year and that moves us on to you know your collaboration with Philips this is the second year uh, that that's happened the first year seemed to be from a, a consumer point of view it was a brilliant experience but it felt that you were trying to com- to work within the confines of Philips televisions now it feels the new models you've been able to sort of branch out would that be a fair assumption yeah, absolutely. I think, look, if you looked at um, some of the other partnerships that we've done in the past, you can draw a very strong parallel with our early experiences in automotive. So essentially, at the first and uh, emerging stages of any project, one of the things you're, you're doing is kind of getting to know each other, understanding what each partner in the respective elements of the business has as an expectation, what their requirements are. Uh, in the case particularly of the, the OLED Plus 903, the first set that we worked on, uh, where by the time we'd signed the partnership agreement, most of the fundamentals around um, industrial design, um, the outside dimensions of the component and so forth were already defined. So we were coming into a project that was already running and then attempting to try and adapt that project to suit our own intent. And we did make quite a few fundamental changes because we kind of like that. Um, and happily for the you know our partnership mm. and you know the guys at Philips TV, they, they were very gracious. They saw the value in those changes and they appreciated the performance advantages and we were able to incorporate them. I think this year um, kind of reflects a more mature uh, partnership relationship because obviously OLA Plus 903 was so well regarded and so successful. The outcome of that is we've been able to do a great deal more right from the start. I think it's much more of a symbiosis, if you like, in, in the development process. Right at the start, the team from them has said, you know, okay, guys, based on what you've achieved last year, what do you need? What would you like to have in your ideal world um, if you were going to really advance the art? And I think the the separated enclosures, as we refer to them, the sort of dedicated loudspeaker spaces that we now have in, in both models, the 934 and the 984, are a direct reflection of and do you think that's the is that the sort of bit that you're most excited about the bit that you're probably most proud of is that is that sort of creating the dedicated tweeter speaker in a different you know in addition to the, the loudspeakers as well 
Well, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, in, in lots of ways, loudspeaker engineering isn't rocket science, right? It's just doing, it's just doing logical things by the design. So um, much like if we were going to create a proper loudspeaker for your, for your home, uh, we would focus first and foremost on the value and the quality of the speaker enclosure before anything else. Um, and the same would apply to your car. Um, the same applies to a TV. I mean, essentially, the more space that we have, the stiffer the enclosure, the better the space, the more optimally placed the drive units are, the better the chance we have of producing something that's going to be really satisfying to listen to. So, uh, and there are obvious reasons when you think about mm. it that why that makes sense. I mean, first and foremost, if I was going to look at you and talk to you, you stood a much better chance of understanding what I was going to say. If I looked away from you or looked down at my shoes, uh, it would be much harder for you to understand me. And and when you think that through, that's entirely what the majority of TV sets today do. They either point the speaker down at the floor or, you know, into your tabletop, or they point it away from you. So starting with driving it's the face forwards, sounds simple, but it's really logical. It makes sense. Uh, and then going from there to, okay, let's have a decent sized speaker enclosure. Let's really stiffen it up so it doesn't vibrate and resonate. That means we can drive it harder. Uh, that means we can get more output from it. And that means also by putting it into its own separated space, we can do all of that without any risk to um, the performance that we can get from the picture, which clearly, of course, is very important too. Now, Bowser Wilkins is known for the Nautilus and amongst other amazing speakers that you guys produce. How much of that technology in a speaker like that trickles down into you know, the, some of your smaller sets, some of your smaller speakers and, and the experience here? I mean, everything that we do is is um, what we would call cascade or trickle down of, of technology that goes into the premium models. If you think about, um, let's talk about high frequency is just one obvious example. So for quite a period of time now, we've worked on um, high frequency diaphragms or tweeters that uh, behave pistonically, uh, where it, we're attempting to try and make sure that the, the diaphragm doesn't bend or flex or distort in unwanted ways as it moves upwards in frequency. And we've used a variety of different types of material to achieve that. You touched on Nautilus, that uses aluminium. Um, more recently, we've used diamond, as you might be familiar with, in the 800 series mm. diamond. So in uh, in the TVs, uh, we're using a, a very light, uh, smaller, but very high-performance titanium dome. Now, it's the first time we've used that material, but it allows us to get something which is smaller than our standard diaphragm, 19 millimeters as opposed to 25, and still has extremely good, even... Um, dispersion and behavior and that's exactly cascaded thinking from you know the premium loudspeakers and you can take that across the board with with almost everything that we're doing so you know decoupling assemblies using isolating mounts to essentially uh, control vibration and, and, and resonance as it moves through the system so that it doesn't pollute the output of a given drive unit with the output of another drive unit um, if you go through the 984 in particular you've got fully decoupled isolated tweeters sitting in fully decoupled isolated enclosures. Right. Now that's exactly what we do in uh, an 800 series diamond loudspeaker. It's literally the same thinking. And have you found it the other way around? Have you found anything that you've done on some of these, you know, on these sets that has then gone, Oh, actually we can put that into, you know, the high end speakers in reverse because we've learned the loaders at the same time. I think one of the, well, okay. One of the really interesting things you always learn when you're space constrained and when you're working with perhaps more budget limitations as well, because let's be clear, these are, you know, a complete TV set for 2000 pounds and we charge quite a lot more than that for some of our speakers um, <laughs> is you, you learn to be inventive with the use of materials. So, um, things like the glassfield ABS constructions that we use to kind of build the, the enclosures and how to rib those and stiffen those up to make sure that they, they, they minimize bending and flexing. 
that's something that we've applied in a lot of our, our more affordable products. So I won't say in, in a, an 800 series diamond, but certainly in uh, some of the formation products that we do historically in things like the Zeppelin, that's, that's common thinking, that's shared. And it works very effectively. Uh, one of the most interesting things we spent some time working on uh, and having to learn on uh, with the 934 in particular is, is Dolby Atmos using uh, the angled elevation upward firing drive units. Really understanding how to engineer those because that's the first time that we've done that. Um, and understanding the differentiation and requirement that you have between them and a more conventional drive unit. It's been a real eye-opener. I can't say that as a result of that we'll commit to putting it into the next generation of premium loudspeaker, but I definitely think we've learned that we can do it and do it well uh, and probably apply it to other more affordable products within our own portfolio as well. Now, Dolby Atmos, as you mentioned, is you know something that has suddenly not necessarily jumped onto the scene, but it's certainly being very much branded around by a lot of companies, uh, from you know loudspeakers to soundbars to to even you know mobile phones. Do you how important do you think it is to support that format, and 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 how important is it to sort of you know in the sort of improving sound for movies and TV shows? Twofold answer. So first off, I think any form of immersion um, helps to control the reality of the environment that you're actually in. Now, if you think about the film experience, you're you're normally watching something that's intended for use or replay in a, in a theatre or a cinema, depending on what you prefer to call them. And they're very different spaces from your normal front room. Um, not least of which is that, you know, the speakers in a cinema are typically yeah. much farther away from your ear. So... It, creating that sense of a more believable experience by immersing you and wrapping you in the sound, howsoever you choose to do it, has been, you know, the essential element of home cinema for decades now. It used to be, obviously, you know, Dolby Pro Logic, it moved to Dolby Digital, it moved to Surround EX, then it moved to multiple different forms of 7.1, 9.1, and here we are today with, with Atmos. Mm. I think the appealing thing about integrating Atmos into a TV set and the way we've done it is, of course, a lot of people rightly, for whatever reason, don't want to have, you know, physical speakers dotted around their home. They perhaps don't in particular want to have cables running across the floor to rear speakers. What I find interesting and exciting about Atmos is it creates that sense of immersion, of bringing you into the soundstage without requiring any physical additional componentry. And I think for a lot of people, that's very compelling. The idea of being able to you know, uh, change the reality of the room that they're in um, for the period of time whilst they're watching Atmos-enabled content, of course, is is quite exciting. And it seems to be a pretty robust technology. Um, You know, we've obviously, as I said, spent some time getting to understand it and and make it work to, you know, what we believe are the appropriate standards, which in particular puts a lot of focus on on the engineering of the drive unit itself. But having having kind of got that far... um, it seems to add, and it adds not just to obviously Atmos encoded content as well. I should add, we've been we've been you know using films that are both Atmos encoded and films that are not, uh, and even with you know the sort of older movies that we've worked with, you you definitely seem to add an extra dimension of you know convincing spatial immersion just by having the elevation driving units operating. Now, the final question I have is uh, probably one looking to the future. Where do you, you know, what big trend are you seeing moving forward in in the speaker world that's going to sort of, you know, be the story for 2020? We can always do better. I think that there there are two parts to it. If you look at the the tools that we use to measure and to understand today and compared to where we were 15 years ago, the, the level of genuine knowledge and understanding about the behavior of a structure of a cabinet and whatever else is massively improved. So I'm sure... 
in a year's time or two years time or three years time, we'll be looking at the products that we make today and we'll be identifying how we can improve them. So that's what you would expect. That's a more traditional mm-hmm. and radical thing, uh, a traditional than radical thing, pardon me. I think in more, in more in the kind of the radical element, I think presence and pattern recognition is really interesting. I, um, you know, a lot of people ask about voice and I, I can see that. I mean, you know, I have Alexa at home. I'm sure most people have something like that at home. I don't personally find it a particularly satisfying way to interact with my music. I use it for lots of other things, but not necessarily kind of to change the way I consume music. But I think presence or pattern recognition, so a system that you know automatically recognizes that it's you as opposed to your partner or one of your children or whatever it might be, and selects the music that it deems appropriate for you at that point in time and plays it at the level that you typically like to listen to just by you walking in the room. That's quite an interesting idea. Yeah. Um, so, so almost like removal of work and making it a bit more magic. So, so that, that's, that's the idea. So making it a bit more, um, a bit more seamless. I think, I think we, if we could move, do one thing to kind of really advance people's enjoyment of music, we've, we've done tremendously, I think as a business and as an industry over the course of the past 15 years by making streaming services more accessible by making, getting the song that you want in an instant as opposed to having to you know think about it and go down the record shop whatever it might be so in lots and lots of ways the joy of access to music is is massively increased the last step in the chain is to then make that accessible to really high quality devices as easily as it's accessible to you on your phone or your ipad or whatever it might be and i think uh, presence and pattern is probably one of the interesting ways that we should look to try and do that the motorola razor is back 15 years after it first burst onto the stage moto has brought the classic clamshell back to the shops, but this time with a foldable display instead of those Tron-esque keys. But does it work? Is it any good? And will it be your next smartphone? Mike Lowe has already played with a new device that's out next year and is here to tell us more. So, Mike, what do you think? I think it's really exciting. So, I mean, over the last few years, we've had you know incremental phones, haven't we? It's just been, yeah. here's a phone, here's another phone. This one is... The flip phone kind of reimagined. So um, you've probably seen some foldable phones and, and this very much works in the same way. But the thing about the Razer is um, as the original, which is 15 years ago, it ultimately folds in half. So imagine you've got a smartphone, but it's then half the size and, and becomes this kind of tiny little thing with a screen on the front. So you've got this kind of two ways of using it with this little screen that you can see your notifications and, and so on. And you can just flip it open full-size phone and continue off from there from what you see on the front so it's just a very it's like a really different way of thinking particularly at the moment and I think given how foldables have been like a really hot topic this does things in just such a different way because it's not a Samsung Galaxy Fold it's not trying to be a tablet um, it's not the Huawei Mate X you know it's it's doing things in a, in a different way in a way that's modern but also as, as you said it seems sort of nostalgic because it's effectively bringing back a phone that is you know 10 to 15 years old yeah i mean we covered the first motorola razor when i first started pocket Lend, right. <laughs> uh, back in 2003 so you know it's it feels like you know i remember an old boss of mine saying if you wait long enough everything comes full circle and it, it feels somewhat that is so i have questions lots of questions and i'm sure our listeners do but unfortunately they don't have the it's not a live phone in so they don't have the ability to phone in yeah. so i'm going to try and ask them for them so when it's folded up, yeah. like how big is it? Like, is it a bar of soap? Is it thick? Like, how big is it in that sense? Um, so it's you know, 
obviously it's in essence it's twice the size that a phone could be but they've been quite scrupulous about getting it down to a sensible enough size um so if i remember right i think it was it's under 14 millimeters so think about a normal phone is usually about eight and a half so it's, it's certainly thicker um but when you unfold it that thickness doesn't totally go away because it still has the full thickness around the the chin as they call it down the bottom right um, but i don't think it matters that much like it sounds big but then when you hold it it feels really small because it just kind of is you know it's like a little i don't know it's just like a little nugget it's it's so much smaller than a normal phone that you're used to holding um and when you when you've opened it up fully are yeah. we talking sort of like iphone 11 size screen are we talking sort of you know some of these monster samsung you know s10 size screens well, it's fairly small so it's a um it's a 6.2 inch screen um which is 21 9 aspect ratio so it's a bit thinner and it's like what you'd see a hollywood movie being if you know what i mean so it, it gives it that kind of really easy to hold in one hand kind of sense um and because when you've unfolded it you've got half the thickness in the main body so it feels just feels really natural to hold it and you don't really notice that bigger chin because it just it kind of sits out the way um and you don't interact with that chin either once you've opened it up you've still got the normal android keys at the bottom which i thought would be a bit of a problem i thought that chin would get in the way but having used it it doesn't it feels completely fine and in terms of the balance and stuff once you've then folded it is it does it feel does it sort of lock into place is there a sense that you've then got a phone that you're used like most people will be used to using over the last 10 years they, they talked about this a lot. So they've put a lot of work into kind of how this whole thing operates. And uh, I think the problem we've seen with some flexible displays, particularly on the Samsung, is you, you get this kind of crease down the middle. Mm. With the motor, when you unfold it, they've kind of developed the system where these kind of metal plates slide up and it just stabilizes the screen. It keeps it like completely solid. You can't see a crease at all. Um, and yeah, it, it does feel, it feels solid. Like it's, it's actually really quite impressive on that front. And there's no sort of fiddling around with buttons to get it open. There's no like lock key or anything like that. And when you fold it shut, you can just snap, snap it shut. Um, it's a tiny bit fiddly to open it in the first place, but other than that, it, it just feels, it feels really well thought out. You know, it, it works. It just works. And did you, uh, did you have a razor back in the day, so to speak, I, were you a clamshell user? I never actually owned one, but they were everywhere. So I always saw them. I'm trying to think who would have had one that I knew. But I had loads of clamshells all the way through from uh, – I had the Razer for a while. I had the Sony Ericsson V800, which was like this monster. It was the first 3G phone. Yeah, you know, yeah. so it kind of – and then I think we shifted to, to, to candy bars and Blackberries and – <laughs> all yeah, those kind of things going on a, a hardcore nokia user for quite a long time and, and that just kind of stuck that that easy method of use um you know i was used to the keypad and whatever but the the razor originally did have a keypad and obviously this one doesn't you know it's it's you fold it unfold it and you've just got a full touchscreen um which it uses plastic oled which is poled as some people might say um which is what all these foldable screens have to use because they, they can't be glass, obviously, because it mm. cannot fold. Um, small problem with POLED is it's a little bit reflective, um, but it's kind of one of the small compromises you have to pay to, to have that foldable screen. And just watching it fold is kind of amazing in its own in its own way, you know, because it completely flexes. 
and you see this little curve down the center as you're doing it you can actually like press that and flex it with your thumb if you want to you probably shouldn't but it's kind of satisfying just seeing this technology completely operational and like in your hand and so the negatives here you know are you paying i know they're expensive or expected to be expensive when they come out in 2020 are are are, is this device you know is it gimmick do you really need it to be folding does anything need to fold you know (laughs) it's, it's something just cool about it um it's not entirely necessary but i think the way i was kind of looking at it is in a sense it's kind of like so i don't wear a watch and if i was to say have an iphone i'd get an apple watch with this phone because you've got the glance screen on the front which is like a 2.7 inch screen it's really small but that's almost like your apple watch sort of peek into the world of phone and you don't have to open it until you want to sort of go a step beyond that so it will stop you kind of constantly just thumbing around a phone screen for no particular reason. So I kind of like that idea. I think it's a bit, mm. it's a different approach in that way. You could just leave it sat on the desk and, you know, kind of almost like the digital well-being sort of element of of a phone. Sense. Yeah, potentially. I mean, but also there's some satisfaction in just opening and closing it. So you might be doing that all the time. <laughs> um, I mean, that was always a fidget thing with the original one. So I mean, yes. Also, it's expensive. Um, US is about fifteen hundred if you were to buy it. Um, well, I would say SIM-free, but that's not the case because it's an eSIM and you can only get it on Verizon. In the UK, we know it's launching on EE. Um, we don't know more information yet. Given how bad the pound is against the dollar, I wouldn't be surprised if it was the same in pounds. So it's probably going to be 1,500 quid. But then, you know, I, I know that's expensive. We've kind of got to a point now where, you know, flagship phones are all £1,000 anyway. And as you say, you are buying something that's not out there. It's kind of, you know... The Samsung Galaxy Fold, which Chris has been using and 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 has also really enjoyed, you know, is a very very different proposition. So yeah, that's like a tablet, effectively, and also that's even more. That's nineteen hundred pounds, and then the Huawei, I think, is around twenty two hundred euros. So uh, this is kind of the cheapest one, and for me, it's the most successful way of putting a folding screen into something. You don't get the crease; it just makes sense and it just works. There are some small compromises that I haven't mentioned, actually, though, because it is limited in size, they've had to be quite conservative with the battery. So the battery's in two parts, and they've balanced it so it feels really balanced and well-weighted, however you're holding it. But the size of the battery is sort of maybe two-thirds that you would get in a uh, in a standard flagship, and that's potentially going to cost how long it lasts for. So we'll have to see, but I can't yet comment on exactly how well it'll perform in that term and so the final question will you uh will you be excited to get one will you are you looking forward to to review one i know i wouldn't ask you whether you'd want to buy one because you haven't actually had a chance to play with one for a huge amount of time yet but overall are you confident and excited this is the future yeah because i see phones all the time right and a lot of them are really interesting but this one is just so different it's exciting it's the first time that i've seen something that different for for years right so it just feels like this technology we've been talking about for so long has actually happened in a way that is feasible and and does work so yeah i'm excited it'll be really interesting to see when it comes out in january that's it for this week if you've enjoyed the show can you please give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform you're listening on it really will help raise our profile and let others know you liked it too until next friday pip pip 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 